0: welcome to the darkened hour welcome to another episode of the darkened hour i'm your host adam fitzgerald with me today is elizabeth l miller miller is the project director for september 11 families for peaceful tomorrows a nonprofit 9-11 family member organization that promotes peace miller earned an m.a in middle eastern studies at the cuny graduate center in new york her research had focused on the complexities of women's involvement in terrorism, an examination of human involvement in terrorism, uh, human rights abuses in a post 9-11 world. Elizabeth lost her father, firefighter Douglas C. Miller, on a September 11, 2001. She appeared in dozens of broadcast interviews and panels in the United States and abroad around the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Elected in 2021, she currently serves on the City Council of Paul Jervis, New York. Elizabeth, thank you very much for coming on today on the show.
1: Thanks for having me. I appreciate you reaching out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I like I said before, we recorded, you know, I deal with uh strictly people from the intelligence services and geopolitical background. But I never had a grassroots uh grassroots advocate for a movement. And um when I learned about more about your group, I said, you know, I'd I'd love to have her on because I want uh more attention paid to these grassroots movements uh, because there's so few of them left. And so why don't you tell me, um, what made you uh, begin to uh, become interested with this group, September 11 Families for Peace on Mars, and what's it about?
1: Sure, so I, first of all, I'm 28 years old. I was six when I lost my dad on 9-11. And so growing up in, you know, a- basically a post 9-11 world. Um, I was directly impacted, of course, the day of, but the politics and and war and everything else after was always, you know, a part of my life, whether I liked it or not. And I always had a deep, I guess, um, concern about what happened after 9-11 and who did what, because it felt like not that it was directly because of me, but because of my loss and because of the loss of the, on, on that day, so many things happened. And I always grew up in a home where my mom was like, you know, be kind to other people, <laughs> love everybody, mm-hmm. and that just kind of dictated how I lived my life. And in 2020, it's actually kind of crazy how I found peaceful tomorrows because I didn't really find them; I was directed to them, but. In 2020, I received a letter from the Department of Defense about going down to Guantanamo to witness the pretrial hearings as a family member, as a 9-11 family member. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, I want to go down and I want to get the full picture. Or I want to speak to the prosecution and the defense and see what's really going on down there. And I was just a little unsure um, of what it would be like traveling with, with the Department of Defense, just because, you know, I'd, I'd never done anything like that. So I was like, let me go directly to this. So I found um, one of the attorney's phone numbers and emails for Khalid Sheikh Sheikh Oh, and I was like, if anyone you know really knows what's going on, it's going to be him. Sure. So I called the attorney, and he was, you know, sweet as pie and helped give me all sorts of information that you know that he could. And he was like, you know what? There's this organization that I think you would really love that you would fit into very well, and so with the defense teams, um, they also have defense victim outreach specialists. And there's two of them who work you know, on Guantanamo with the defense attorneys. And he directed me to them. And they said, this organization, September 11th Families for Peaceful Tomorrows is a welcoming group. They advocate for peace, understanding, the rule of law, justice. And why don't you reach out to them? So I did and in 2020, so I'm a, a later member. And I'll go back a little bit, but the organization was founded in 2002, February of 2002. So very shortly after the attacks. And I think what moved me so much was that, you know, these people had experienced such trauma and pain and loss. And instead of turning to violence, they said, let's join together and and advocate for peace and nonviolence. So... Honestly, since February of 2002, the organization has been going strong. Um, there's over 250 members across the United States, but we also have members around the world, which I think is remarkable. Um, and it is a nine eleven family-only organization. And I think that speaks volumes that, you know, of course, the, the 9-11 family community is so large, but to have over 250 members who are dedicated and have signed on to advocating for peace, um just really sat well with me and made my heart feel very full
0: did you ever you know after the events of september 11 2001 you were you were you're were very young then and as you got older did you ever think that you would be part of a grassroots uh, advocate movement in the future
1: um maybe i'll say yes and no so when i was in 6th grade I wrote a letter to then president George Bush and said we need to stop this war. <laughs> you know I was only 11 years old and I and I I got my classmates to sign it. I sent it, never heard a response and sent him another letter and very um I was very sassy at 11 years old and I said could you please respond to this letter since you didn't respond to the last one.
0: What? But in <laughs> each other
1: I this, this violence you know meeting violence with violence never brings any progress it, it doesn't bring resolution it doesn't bring my dad back um it just creates more pain and suffering for everybody and so I think I had always had maybe that like that grassroots set like sentiment in my heart but no I I didn't really think that I would find like-minded people like myself um I always felt a little bit alienated or, and not purposely ostracized or alienated, but I always felt a little bit like an outsider, like, you know, I'm a 9-11 kid who has a lot of different thoughts than others because my goal is peace and forgiveness and forgiveness because, you know, when you forgive, it benefits yourself more than anybody. And I didn't really have a lot of people who shared that same perspective. So I guess the answer to that is yes and no.
0: Right. No. Um, it's interesting to know because when you wrote a letter to to Bush, I was thinking, well, uh, if he, she's asking him to stop the war, she has a better chance of writing to Santa, and he'll respond in return because <laughs> at that point they were just making up their minds to invade uh, Afghanistan and then Iraq later anyway. um but yes i I I'd probably say for you know for uh, that you probably had the makings of somebody at the very early stage of somebody who was going to be an advocate anyway, because here you are advocating for a a stop against uh, two wars that basically led to over a million deaths because Iraq uh, had two civil wars following up that war itself and destroyed the country and basically had no connection to 9-11. But you're a fascinating individual because you know, I've interviewed many other people relating to this temple of the September 11 attacks, to investigations, to congressional inquiries. And you yourself took the next step and you wanted to know, like me, you wanted to know the motivations of these people. And so you went and studied uh, radical fundamentalism, Middle East history. What made you go down that road, Elizabeth?
1: Yeah, so um, I originally went to college um, at St. John's in Queens for a criminal justice major. And I was like, I I uh, flirted with the idea, I guess, of maybe I'll just join the FBI, CIA, see what's really going on on the inside. And I think because I had that perspective, I was like, this just definitely, this isn't where my heart lies. And so I transferred to a small school in Pennsylvania called Bloomsburg University, and uh, started studying history. And within the history program, there was um, a a faculty member who taught Middle Eastern studies. And I was like, how amazing that one, this small school offers that. And the professor um, is originally from Turkey and he's a wonderful human being. And um, he, he really took me under his wing. And so in that class, it kind of prompted me to start diving deeper into this and I think realistically you know how everybody's shaped by certain things in life but i think the trauma of 911 had a huge impact on obviously my upbringing and i think for me in order for me to process things and process my trauma i decided to study it and and get those answers why mm-hmm. did this happen why did bin laden think that this was absolutely necessary what what was the inner workings of his network you know when did his radicalization begin like did was was what happened in 2001 you know, the start. And of course it wasn't because there was the attacks Mm. in 1993 and, you know, but it was interesting because the deeper and deeper I dived, it felt like I was healing myself instead of paying for therapy. Although I did that for years as well. (laughs) But um, I think finding out the history and the political background um, of all of the behind the scenes work, I guess, before 9-11, just helped me to process everything a bit better. And so I ended up, you know, in, in a lot of degree programs, you have to write, you know, a huge paper. Yeah. And I rely on the uh, radicalization of, of bin Laden before 2001. And I just think that, of course, it's available to the public, but I don't think that the public always dives deep, deep down to figure out You know, I don't agree with why it happened, but unfortunately, everybody has a reason of why they do things. And I think for me, it was just like interesting isn't the right word, but it was helpful to me to know what really went on and why.
0: Sure, because it gives you a little bit of an answer as to why these attacks happened in the first place. It is exactly one of the reasons why I took the road of Understanding geopolitics in general, because I wanted, like you, I wanted to know the motivations of these people and uh, what is the reasoning behind those motivations. And what it did basically was have a branch out effect, and I it led to many different areas. And you know, I found out that the, you know, the uh, Bin Laden had come from a very wealthy background. He came from a very wealthy family from a very luxurious company. I found out that the company, that the family had connections uh, conveniently to the Bush administration. And later on, I found out that uh, the CIA became involved in a program back in Afghanistan, and so on, and so on, and so on. And so there's a lot of connections that were close, and it made me ponder and question about um, reasoning behind bin Laden and the group al-Qaeda itself. So I, I share that commonality with you because that's how exactly I, how I became interested in 9-11 in general. And when you studied bin Laden and al-Qaeda, did you, I want to say, did you become more satisfied with the reasoning of why these attacks have? Because one thing about al-Qaeda is when they attack or before they attack, they give you the reasonings as to why they do. And it's basically not because of any religious indifference, uh, because for one, these people aren't very, they may claim to be religious, but they're illiterates and they interpret the Quran uh, incorrectly. And many of these people go by Hadith. But were you satisfied partially or fully or not at all regarding as to the reasoning why these attacks happened in the first place coming from these people?
1: Yeah, and I, I think that's like I said earlier, like that's kind of what helped me process my trauma. So diving back, you know, bin Laden had released a fatwa or a religious ruling. Mm
0: -hmm. And,
1: you know, of course he was not a cleric or anybody who had the authority to um, release a religious ruling, but, you know, he had one in 1996, he had one in 1998. That's that basically said, you know, this is why we're doing these things. You know, U S presence in foreign countries on foreign soil, um, like you had kind of said, the geopolitics, the international hands of the United States have have touched so much, and you know I think putting it in generally, it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, sure. and right. also what you said, it, it's a, it's a common misconception that you know, Al Qaeda was attacking the United States for our religious beliefs and our our values, you know, like that might have been a very, very small percentage as to the reasoning. And also to, to piggyback with what you're saying too, is, you know, any religious group has its extremists and they take with, you know, they take the religious texts and they do with them and interpret them how they, you know, how they feel is necessary for them or for their cause, um, or for their political gain. Or and I think that um, in this situation, you know, Al Qaeda does not represent Islam in any way, shape, or form. Oh, <laughs> and I think, I think sometimes people who don't take that deep dive can't can't fully understand that. But back to the original question. I would say, yeah, you know, like, and kind of how you struggled with saying, you know, are you satisfied? Like, what is the correct word? But I do feel like I was satisfied. I felt better to know why he thought it was necessary. Like I said, I don't agree with his reasoning, but everybody has a reason for doing something. I don't agree with his actions, but bin Laden and al Qaeda had grounds to be frustrated. Um, everybody has grounds to be frustrated. It's just most people don't turn those frustrations into extreme uh, violence. But, yeah, I think it, it felt better to to understand why.
0: Yeah, and I always tell people that the, you know, when I hear, because I, I, I covered the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, and then when Ramzi Youssef got caught, and he was allowed to give a, um, uh, uh, he was allowed to comment before he was sentenced And he gave like a half hour of this oral dictation about why he did what he did. And I said, you know, this is very important because they're telling you why they are attacking in the first place. I mean, it's very unusual for your perpetrator suspect or offender to basically give a reasoning as to why they committed a crime in the first place. I mean, we see this. we, We don't see this all the time in court systems, like when a murderer or robber basically says, I didn't do it. You know, you have a group and an organization led by people that are, and this is very unusual because they're actually telling you the reasons. And I don't agree with what Ramzi Youssef did, but I can understand it. And I think, like you said, there's a a common misconception regarding us to, oh, you probably uh, empathize with these people. No, not in that way, but I can understand why they're doing it, because if we ever concentrate, and pay attention to the foreign policies of the United States and what's going on abroad in our name, maybe we'll start questioning about those decisions made in our name because they're disastrous, not just for us, but for the people abroad. And that's the reason why these attacks are happening in the first place, not just attacking because they hate, like you know, like you said, they hate us because we're wearing short skirts and because we're polytheists or because we're Christian. No, it's because of our foreign policy, and we need to make those changes. But let me go back to the group itself. Um, When you joined uh, the September Eleven Families for Peaceful Tomorrows, have you met anybody in that group with uh, uh, that level of determination and veracity uh, regarding um, what you study now currently? So
1: I would say yes. And even more, um, oh. some, like I said, you know, a lot of the co-founders who got together in, in 2002, and they really came up with what peaceful tomorrows would stand for. And I think they were in a bar and they wrote it down on a napkin. Um, and some of those people have just been, you know, faithful and fearless advocates for, you know, advocating for peace in the face of, of the tragedy of nine 11. Um, Since the beginning, we had members who traveled to Afghanistan and Iraq, and met with, you know, families who had been impacted by what the United States did. And what I'm witnessing now is, as I've taken over the project director position, is we have a lot of younger members or, you know, like the 9/11 kids, and many of them have actually studied Middle Eastern studies, just like me, and like I said before, it's just really so heartwarming to think, you know, these people who have experienced such pain decided not to answer that pain with violence or hate in their heart and instead mm. turn to studies and and advocating. Um, and currently, you know, of course, in any organization, you have periods of heavy activism and sometimes you have to take a step back. Um, but currently we have Three committees that that do a lot of work. One is Islamophobia, two is for um, issues on Afghanistan, and three is rule of law, which deals a lot with um, AUMFs that that are you know so the authorized use of military force, and of course what's going on at the Guantanamo Bay detention center, and they're very active and still advocating. You know, we're at this point we're advocating for plea deals in the nine eleven case, and it's it really is just so crazy that all of these years later, these people just have not given up on, and I think doing what's right and not necessarily, I mean, I don't know if anybody can hold the U S accountable, but encouraging the U S to be accountable in their actions of foreign policy and their abandonment of rule of law after nine 11 and their abandonment of, you know, dedication to human rights with torture and indefinite detention, uh, indefinite detention. So it's, I definitely found my people when I joined the organization, which is why I was so excited to take on the project director role uh, in 2022.
0: And this has kept you active throughout, too. I mean, and 9-11 is a very expansive topic. So in other words, unlike JFK, this is, uh, 9-11 is basically more international in scope. So there's a lot more to do and a lot more to keep you busy to uh, have a fuller understanding. And I think that's one of the reasons why you have basically connected with so many in the organization. And I had no idea that we had such grassroots movements so close to home because I I live in New York and I'm up here in lower Westchester. And I've tried to basically find through, I guess, uh, you know, haphazardly any movements or groups that were active, but I lost interest a couple of years ago because I said, well, it's, you know, we're we're so far ahead in time, but I had no idea that this group existed until recently, and uh, it's very refreshing to see because, um, you know, as time you know goes by, we start to lose interest in many areas, especially with COVID and whatnot and uh, other uh, happenings around the world. You would think that um, uh, groups like, uh, you know, any any group attached to September 11 would you know, pass on, move on, but it's, this is actually refreshing to hear that this group has basically has over 200 members and is still active uh, currently. Um, Are there any other groups uh, that are uh, affiliated with this group that are active somewhere in the States as well?
1: Not to be, I'm not totally familiar, but that could also be, you know, my lack of research and Knowledge. I know that Peaceful Tomorrows has a lot of other nonviolent partners, but I don't know if there are any other um, 9-11 family or 9-11 focused peace partners um, that are still committed t- to this work. Um, and that's not like, that's not saying that there isn't any, but just at, at this point, not that I know of. Um, and I think kind of what you said, it it is so refreshing. And, and I said, you know, when I took on the project director position, I said, you know, until the issues of 9-11 cease to exist. And I think, unfortunately, I'm not sure if they ever will. Um, I'd like to keep peaceful tomorrows going. And, you know, when I have kids, let them join. And I think mm-hmm. let them carry on the advocacy and, and the fight for justice and judicial finality um, until that's reached.
0: Sure. And uh, I think one of the uh, connections uh, currently is um, through what uh, you brought up before about Guantanamo Bay. And um, this has been an outright disaster in my view. Um, I know a couple of years ago under the Obama administration that we had a couple of lobbyists that were pressuring for uh, the Guantanamo to be shut down and for the uh, Guantanamo Five, which are the five men who were detained and arrested for their alleged roles in planning and giving logistical support to the September 11 attacks, and that's Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Ramzi bin al-Sheib, Amir al-Baluchi, um, Tawfiq bin Atash, and um, uh, Mustafa al-Hasawi. And unfortunately, Obama agreed to keep the trial in Guantanamo. So um, I think my question for you is what did, is your opinion about, or what are your thoughts about having a a trial at this point. Do you think that a trial will be uh, happening anytime soon, or uh, do you? What is your opinion about the the latest uh, uh, um, hypothesis is that the Biden administration is currently making a deal with the lawyers for these people about bringing the death penalty off the table if they agree to uh, plead guilty to all the charges?
1: Yeah. So first of all, I'm very impressed that you knew the name of the five accused.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I get that all the time, but Um, I, but I can't remember Tom and Bill.
1: (laughs) There's, there's, there's so many uh, people who really just don't know what's going on at Guantanamo. And I think it's a disservice. Of course, you know, 9-11 families focus on what they can. um, But there isn't a whole lot of guaranteed media attention about the reality of what's going on down there of course there's carol rosenberg um, and uh john ryan does work for law dragon i believe and they're two individuals who are you know dedicated to reporting on it but i first traveled to guantanamo um to witness the pretrial hearings i believe in 2021 actually we were supposed to leave on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and then they realized we can't have people traveling on 9-11 we'll go the day after and you know, it's unfortunate that these pretrial hearings occur, you know, in Guantanamo, in Cuba, and it doesn't make it very accessible for 9-11 families or the public. And I, you know, I think all information, I have a, I'm, you know, I'm a historian and degree, and I think that this information should be easily available to people. And unfortunately it's not. And they also have CCTV sites for family members to visit and stream the pretrial hearings. Mm-hmm. But having them at this location that you have to travel to, and when you go, you know, you're know you there for a week and it's like you're on a different planet for a week. And you go and you sit in and, and you watch the pretrial hearings where they, they're arguing about what evidence can be included. You know, were we really at war? This can't be included because it was derived from torture mm-hmm. and to this day we still don't know the who what where when and why of these five mm-hmm. acute we don't know how involved they were how little involved they were and realistically charging these five men who may have have hugely different degrees of guilt and involvement you know charging them the same it just doesn't make sense and for me that that's one of the reasons why i'm a big advocate for plea deals mm-hmm. um I personally don't believe in the death penalty. It's just something I I don't believe in. So one, taking that off the table makes me supportive of it as well. I would rather have this information be available. And of course, I'm praying to whatever God's out there that this information isn't classified, you know, if it is is ever released, if we do ever reach a sentencing hearing. But the pre, like at this point, it's 2023 and we're still in pretrial hearings. And it's just not fair to 9-11 families. It's not fair to anybody down at Gitmo. It's not fair to the defense attorneys. It's not the the prosecution attorneys. It's not fair to the public. And I think that plea deals are the only way forward for any possibility of judicial finality, because at this point, I don't think a trial will ever happen. Mm. And of course, the torture plays a role in that. And how can you how can you get information or hold somebody accountable that you waterboarded numerous amount of times and you know kind of what you said before like you get accused of being empathetic but my focus is the rule of law and my focus is that human rights are upheld for any prisoner and you know it it, it just makes it difficult but realistically i think plea deals where they plead guilty and if they were to do that, it's likely that they would have to do a stipulation of facts. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that could bring, you know, some, we don't, I don't really like to use the word closure because I don't really think any concept of closure exists in, in this world. Oh, great, great, yeah. But, you know, the saying judicial finality and having this case be closed and having some of the answers again as to why, um, I think would be very beneficial for me as a family member, for all sorts of family members, and of course, to the public who deserves to know about this as well.
0: You know, just a quick follow-up to that question, too, Elizabeth. Uh, do other family members in uh, September 11 Families for Peaceful Tomorrows agree with that uh, synopsis that uh, there should be plea
1: So our organization started advocating for plea deals, actually, in, oh. I think, 2016, 2017, because we are also the only nine eleven family organization that has NGO or non-government observer status at Guantanamo Bay, so we don't have to travel there as victim family members with the Department of Defense. We can go down as a you know as a non-government organization to witness the pretrial trial hearings, and along with other NGOs, a lot of um a lot of young attorneys go, like members of I think like the ACLU, Human Rights Watch, just like a and I don't know specifically those organizations, but organizations like those um, are able to travel down. And so, Peaceful Tomorrows felt that it was important for us to have that status to be there, witness, and see what's really going on. Because, like I said before, sometimes if you're not at Guantanamo when these things are going on, you don't have the full scope of of reality of the situation. So, my, the organization, ha- yeah, has been advocating. I believe it's 2016, if not early 2017. But at that point, they said, you know, this is not going anywhere. We need to figure out another solution.
0: You know, I, I, I noticed in my uh, run up to this interview, when I tried to find out more about you, um, I see that you we have a, another commonality. And um, basically what happened was a couple of weeks ago, I uh, got in touch with somebody who knew a former detainee in Guantanamo named Mohammed Aoud Slahi. And I did a podcast about uh, two years ago about the film, The Moritarian. And through uh, this person in Germany, Zachariah Rachmani, who's uh, currently working on a documentary on Sly, he uh, got in touch with me, and I asked him if he can get in touch with Sly so I could interview him, and I did. And basically, uh, you were on a panel, I think. Uh, could you tell me more about that? The
1: yeah, so I actually, when I was in grad school, still studying terrorism, because you know, once you start, it's hard to stop. And I took a course on prison literature. And for that course, I ended up doing a intense research paper on Muhammadu's memoir. And as I was reading it, I just was like, I feel so guilty mm. because, you know, a lot of leaders when they carry out foreign policy and do these things are like, you know, we're doing this for you, nine eleven family members. And I'm like, you never asked me anything. Like, I didn't want you to do this for me. Um, and so I reached out to Mohamedou's editor and I was like, I need to apologize to this man. Like, I don't know if he wants to speak to me. I don't know what he's comfortable with, but you know, if he doesn't want to, cause you could you at least pass this along? And the editor wrote back and said, Mohamedou would love to meet with you, would love to speak to you. And, you know, it's actually crazy because I was working downtown in the city and I actually FaceTimed Mohamedou for the first time right outside of ground zero So it was very full circle. Um, and you know, I apologized and he was, you know, like, you don't have to apologize. It's not your fault. And I was like, I understand, but I still feel awful. Um, and to be honest, we've been friends ever since and we check in every now and then. Um, we used to FaceTime a lot more, but he's so busy these days, which makes me so happy. Um, because he deserves to be free. He deserves to, you know, live his life because a large portion of his life was stripped away from him, which is just awful. Um, so yeah, we brought a panel together. And like I said, we we check in when we can, but he is a wonderful human being who experienced, you know, what I always had said to him is we both experienced trauma from 9-11, but in different forms, but in that way we're alike. And, you know, we have a bond and we understand trauma in a, in a different sense um so he he's absolutely wonderful so i don't know if you were able to chat with him but i i hope that you are because his story is powerful and his ability to move forward and forgive and look past is, is just remarkable
0: yeah i've I've interviewed him and um it was a very good discussion because we talked about for i'd say two and a half hours and uh he is a fascinating individual and i've learned uh a lot of things about him and it's not basically due to night 11 it's more about his profile and background and how he grew up and uh, what led to the, you know, this disastrous story to begin with. And he's just one of many, unfortunately, because I think Andy Worthington, who wrote the Guantanamo Files, or I think it was called that, he talked about how many uh, detainees we've had in Guantanamo, it was 840, and now it's currently 30. So you figure that we had uh, so many others, like 810 people that were released due to their innocence on the charges opposed by the government. Um, And there's so many stories like this, and it just brings the horror and the realization of what the federal government did in our name uh, regarding uh, captured prisoners in Iraq, Afghanistan, and all throughout Southeast Asia and brought here without uh, any charge whatsoever. Abu Zubaydah is currently held in Guantanamo as an indefinite prisoner with no charge, even though the CIA came out in 2006 and saying that he's not even an Al-Qaeda member, um, even though they charged him being as the uh, lead director and ter- uh, lead director at the Chaldean training camp. Uh, so you wonder what's at the table, what evidence the government has in regards to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the rest. And I think my fear regarding this, and I, Uh, I think your fear as well is that whatever evidence that they had or didn't have, if they make this deal uh, will forever be classified or for the next 40 years will be classified. And we won't know what they had or didn't have. That's just the reason why I'm hoping for a trial. Um, And I, I think initially what the government wanted was for them, for these people to basically just die off from their injuries and, you know, we wouldn't have any trial or whatnot, and everything would be classified. And I think that's the worry. Is that your worry as well?
1: Yeah, and kind of with what you were saying, you know, my fear is that because of the torture and because torture and you know those actions reached so far from all those detainees, you know, until the US admits that they were, you know, guilty of torture and abandonment of the rule of law, some of those men may never see, you know, the real light of day again. Like the example for Octavia, like what mm-hmm. what happens to him? And it's, it's yeah. a sad reality. And I know that, you know, the Obama administration and the Biden administration has been working to, you know, release some of those detainees back to their home countries. But who really knows what what's going to happen and how long they'll be dedicated to that.
0: What has this been like for the rest of your family um, over the years? Have they uh, basically have they come on and um, have they basically uh, moved on from 9-11 itself? Or have they basically held a grudge to Muslims in general? Or have they right. basically uh, accepted the fact that this isn't an Islamic problem? What has this been like?
1: My family is pretty great. They're very supportive of my advocacy, and I think that certain people can, you, you know, like I always say, like my advocacy is. I'm, I still traumatize myself by studying all of this. It's another layer of trauma from nine eleven, but it's one I've also inflicted upon myself. And right. you know, this isn't, I guess, the the fight of my family, but they're extremely supportive. They do not hold grudges. Um, I keep them in the loop on all things, and they like to stay up to date, but my family is super supportive, just not maybe super involved. And, you know, I have respect for all members of, you know, nine eleven families, even if they choose to be hateful, you know, it's not my decision. Or it's not my place to judge how they decide to process their trauma and grief. I just know that hating and not forgiving and being misinformed about people is just not the path that I that I wanted.
0: What is the future like for the September 11 families for peaceful tomorrows? Are they willing to expand to uh, broader areas of 9/11, um, or uh, what is uh, basically the future for this group?
1: Realistically. I don't know if I know the answer to that. I think that peace will always be the, at the forefront of the organization. And until, you know, until the issues and collateral damage almost of the 9-11 attacks is complete, I don't, you know, I think we'll continue to do this work in an, in a, you know, in a perfect world. I wish this organization never had to exist.
0: <laughs> um, right.
1: I wish that this wasn't the path of so many of us, but I can say as long as I'm the project director or you know helping whoever the future project director is, peaceful tomorrow's will live on and if you know the day comes where Guantanamo is closed and the case is closed and we're no longer doing anything wrong in Afghanistan or Iraq or anything else, I'm sure the organization would continue to find something to to advocate for along the lines but. The pessimist in me says I'm not sure when we're ever going to see the consequences of 9/11 come to a close.
0: Right, <laughs> well, uh, I share your because pe- I'm a, I'm I'm what they call a hopeless pessimist. So <laughs> I, I'm I'm tr- I can see the glass uh, less than half full at times. So you no, know, I share your your hesitancy to you know think that we're gonna basically get justice for these people, right? And um, but you got to have hope. I I mean yeah, that's what I think drives me, and it was well because I'm stubborn. And you know the reason why I continue to do these podcasts and episodes, and the reason why I continue to invest and in th- enthrall myself in this very tragic part of history is that the naivety in me, in me is telling me keep going because we can, we can, we can reach people, and we can reach that justice that you're thinking about if we just have enough people on board. But at the same time. We're facing a monolithic government that is hesitant to be uh, forthright in handing over information that uh, may implicate them in malfeasance or even worse foreknowledge um, regarding the attacks. And they don't want that black eye to be stained with them forever. So and also at the same time, we're dealing with, you know, unnecessary disinformation uh, and hesitancy to cover the story from the legacy media. It's almost like the entire world is basically what you're fighting against, which, which shouldn't be this way. But what, what we can make you help sleep at night, Elizabeth, is that um, you know in your heart that what you're doing is the right thing. It is true justice. It's a learning and an understanding. And um, you have a very forgiving nature in you. And um I'm I'm very, very glad I got to reach out to you and interview you because this is what um the show is about. And it's basically about understanding people on the other side of the spectrum and hearing their thoughts about the matter. And um you bring a very fresh and new perspective to it. And um I, I, I thank you very much for it. So currently what are you working on now? What are you studying now? What are your projects and what are your projects for the future?
1: So also back to what you were saying, you know, with our of course, our likeliness and being, you know, <laughs> hopelessly <laughs> pessimistic, I think it's, you know, fantastic one that you're, that you're, that you have this going and that, you know, thank you for taking the time to even have this conversation with me. Um, I think it's people like us and people like the individuals in my organization that maybe one day we'll, we'll see the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, Sometimes we catch a glimpse and then we go back, but you know, we have to just keep fighting. Um, Currently I am, like I said, pretty active in the rule of law advocacy with things at Guantanamo. So that's probably my main thing in addition to helping the organization. Um, But I don't have a whole lot of projects going on right now. I have paused my Bin Laden research. I took a little break <laughs> for my no. sanity, um, but I would like to write a book. I would really very much like to write a book about what it's like to be a 9-11 kid and a 9-11 kid with my perspective, because you know I have met some, but I don't know if people like me are the majority, but I think it's a story worth worth reading. Um, so that that'll be my future project but in addition um, I am on council in the city of Port Jervis and that's my hometown and my hometown was fantastic to us after 9-11 and I'm actually going to be running for mayor so that's my that's my new project
0: <laughs> oh all but right well, we, i I'm up here in Tarrytown so I, I can uh, I don't think I can vote for you but I would uh, we need more Uh, heartfelt people such as yourself, Elizabeth, and, um, you know, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. And so um, I wish you the best of luck in your endeavors and whatnot. And uh, thank you very much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me. And I'm looking forward to staying in touch, and we'll have to share with with each other some of our research.
0: (laughs) I would I would love to do that with you. Elizabeth Miller, project director for September 11 families for peaceful tomorrows. Thank you for turning in to another episode of The Dark Dower. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald.